Welcome to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendricks Past, featuring familiar voices sharing memories from their time at Hendricks College, big and small pieces of life that help make Hendricks Hendricks. Season two features retired faculty members paired with alumni interviewers. For this episode, we welcome Mary Richardson, who taught oral communication at Hendricks from 1978 to 2016. During those years, she also spent time working with theater arts productions and serving as advisor to the Hendricks delegation to the Arkansas Communication and Theater Arts Association Student Congress. In 2015, the Mary Malecki and Richardson Highest Scoring Delegate in the Senate Award was named for her to honor her for 37 years of service to that event. Mary is joined today by her friend and former student, the Honorable Sean Johnson, Hendricks Class of 1998. Mary, Sean, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Well, Professor Richardson, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Sean? Doing well. It's good to see you. Excuse me. And how are you, Judge? I'm doing well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Professor Richardson, it's really great to be here to talk to you about your uh, history at Hendricks College. For 38 years, you taught at Hendricks. And it's a remarkable career. Tell us about your arrival at Hendricks back in 1978. Well, Amy, Sean, actually, I arrived in 1979. Oh. <laughs> Not 78. 78, we I stand was corrected. still living in Fayetteville, getting married and, and moving, moving to Little Rock. But in 1979, a... a Ad went out for a speech teacher from Hendricks College, and I applied for the job. And I sat in my interview. I always like to talk about this. We were in the old administration building, the one before it burned down. And I sat in a circle with President Schilling and Rosemary Hindenburg and Frank Rowland and Dean John Merrill at the time. It also included... Dr. Ziegler, and it included Art Johnson and Frank Rowland, and it may have included one or two more, but those are the names that come to mind. And I remember being asked all kinds of questions, and they asked me if I had any questions, and I said, no, I don't. And then I drove home to Little Rock, and I asked a thousand questions in that car ride all the way home. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's a part-time job, and I don't have it yet, so that's okay. I tried. And then they sent me a letter, and I got the job. And that's wow. how I got here. And we were on trimester, and uh -huh. I taught three courses of speech. And it was called contemporary speaking at the time, which I always like to go, we're, we're taking a class called Now Speak. And <laughs> then, <laughs> then it changed to speech communication, and it had another change in the, in the actual title at one point. But... You know, that was how I got here. Well, now, you mentioned Fayetteville. Did you attend the University of Arkansas for your undergraduate? I did. Go Hogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tell us about what it took to prepare to be a professor of communications and speech. You go to school every day. <laughs> I, I was a speech and drama major. I was actually heavily involved in the theater up there, and speech was the side action for me. And then when I went to grad school, I went to grad school in 
oral communication, speech communication specifically. And so I got my master's degree up there. And so all I've ever had, the final degree for me was a master's degree in speech communication. And a lot of speech classes, persuasion classes involved. I was involved in helping with their intercollegiate forensics program, but I only competed one time in that state tournament kind of thing they had. They called it the State Speech Festival then. And so that's kind of what happened. And I taught speech up at Fayetteville. I was a grad assistant and taught four classes of oral communication over the course of that year of getting my master's degree. I don't know if our uh, listeners can hear, but we did just hear the train go by. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and we know we're at home when we hear that. Yes, Yes. we are. That's part of what makes Hendrix Hendrix, I suppose. Yeah. And so, Mary, not to ask an indelicate question, but in 1979, how old would you have been? 25. And so that was a pretty young age to come to campus. What were your initial interpretations and and, uh, your initial reaction when you when you saw the campus? Oh, I thought it was wonderful. It was it was like being back in college again, you know, and I hadn't been out all that long, actually, but. But it was just wonderful to walk across the campus. And I was my office was put into the Mills building near the theater arts department because Rosemary was the chair of the department. And I'm not sure if she was humanities area chair at that point, but she may have been, which is why she was able to to push this forward to get a speech teacher. She had been teaching speech. And it was becoming clear that there were going to be more, they needed more classes. And so I think that that's why they ended up hiring someone, at this point me. And so to walk from the Mills building over to what was Hewlin at the time and the campus center itself, no longer there, but anyway, was fun. And we had to go get our mail from our boxes. I can still see Rosemary teaching me how to open my mailbox and and getting my mail and so we'd walk there to get our mail and we'd go from there and we'd walk in to the campus center to eat and you'll remember that sean that that was still there at the time so that's where we sat and ate lunch most of the time a lot of the faculty always gathered there and and it was wonderful you know and that was on the trimester system, which was also wonderful, and I missed I missed it when we switched. But anyway, it it was a a great time, and I was always welcome at the table, even though I was part time, and I was always welcome, and it was wonderful. A lot of good memories of sitting at that table and eating lunch with a lot of professors. And so, when you came in, how many women were working at Hendricks uh, in the educational side on on the academic well, side? Well, I had to go in my head. Of course, Rosemary, Dr. Hennenberg in the theater arts department, Eloise Raymond, uh, Mary Lou Martin, and I don't want to leave. So, Erlene Hanna was in the P- physical education side. I, I'm trying to go around my head and see everybody. I don't want to leave anybody out. There weren't that many women here at the time in 1979. There were not. And and the number of faculty was not that high either. You know, it was between 50 and 60, I think, at the most, uh, and may have been just between, between that 50 and 60. And I'm, I just, I'm trying to go through departments now because I hate it. I would hate to be left out. And so I'm thinking uh, around where that is. 
but at se- in 79, that was almost it. Somebody go get a year- yearbook real quick and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that the faculty would dine together in the cafeteria yeah. in Hewland Hall. Yes. Uh, what was that like? Did, did they mix and interact well? The purpose of that was they gave us, and I don't know if they're still doing it, but they they gave us, including me, a part-time person, a card that allowed us to get 12 lunches per term Mm -hmm. free. And the purpose of that was so that we would be in the room with students when they were eating lunch. They wanted us either in the campus center itself or the cafeteria, so the students were part of the process of, of the the whole day. And I really loved that because that wasn't true at the University of Arkansas. We never saw our professors outside of Well, that class. does still happen here. Good. I'm so glad to hear that because it's important that they go to lunch. And, uh, you know, that was something else when we switched to semester system, it changed the whole lunch process because you didn't necessarily gather together in the same way it was hard to get everybody together and so you know and they didn't and and as i in the last 10 years people didn't come out of their offices in quite the same way that they used to we came out and we ate together and we either ate fourth period or fifth period and or both some people if they had fourth and fifth period off you know would do both and we would all sit together and that way and students had the ability to come talk to us you know, and and they did. They did. They saw us and we were part of the group. And I'm glad it's still happening. That's good news. Yeah, it seems like that's a good way for students to see what it's like to be a professional, too, mm-hmm. you know, to, to watch people in the professional world of academics uh, be right. there with them in the same space. Well, so you got your first classes assigned to you. What What were those courses that you were assigned or courses that you chose to teach? It wasn't my choice. I was given three contemporary speaking classes, and I taught one in the fall and two in the spring term, and I was off during the winter. And that first class, and if anybody's listening from that first class in the fall of 1979, we were in Mills A, and I think I had 40 students. And I and the same was true in the spring term, too, like 35, 40. 45 students, and I finally got Dean Raymond to bring that down to 20. It is hard to listen to that many speeches and actually do a good job within the term, but 40 students in that Mills A, and it was quite a baptism for me as a teacher. And they know it, and they know it, and I'm thinking of Cindy right now and (laughs) a couple of others who still talk about it. They know what they did. They know who they are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking you've probably seen a greater proportion of the student body come through your classroom in a given academic year than most other faculty. I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know about that as far as numbers go, but it was a myriad of students in majors, you know, different majors. And it changed over the years. In the middle 80s, it became a requirement for CPA students, CPA-bound students, they had to have speech to be able to take the CPA exam. And so that changed things, and that actually added courses to my thing. I went up from three courses to five courses at one point over the the course of that time period. And that was thanks to Stephen Kerr. He did that. He, he, he said, we've got to have more classes for the students. And then 
eventually what happened with UAMS is they started looking at the requirements to get into pharmacy school, med school, nursing school, and realized they needed, students needed three English credits. And so they allowed, UMS said, well, if you take a speech class, that will count for one of those uh, English requirements. And so, you know, now that they don't have a speech class, they're going to, in five years, they're having to make up for that because they're having to find three English classes that are going to fit with an EA requirement to go with it, which is a little involved. But I, I'm sure they're making it. And if not, you know, they're doing it other places. Other schools outside of Arkansas require speech. And so that that changed things, too. Dental school required it. That's weird, isn't it? You're talking to somebody while you're doing their teeth. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> I never we got that. We all have been in that chair, though. <laughs> yeah. How um, do I talk back? <laughs> Mary, what's the importance of learning good speech? Well, for me, it's about not just learning good. Well, good speech involves several things. It involves understanding that there's a, an organization to it. It isn't just the speaking part of it. It is how do you organize your thought process so that people who are receivers of the message can understand you. And then it's also important that you understand how you sound when you speak, and what's going on, the clarity of that speech, so that those who are listening to you can understand. And that all goes along with what is the process of communication and how does it work? And, you know, I send a message, you receive it, it gets fed back to me, and I can determine whether or not I've been heard as a speaker. And so it's important to understand that process. It's important to understand organization, and it's important to understand delivery. And that is true for interpersonal communication and group communication and public speaking. It's all, a, it's all part of the same thing. And so, you know, one of the things that was always nice to hear was from the science people who students in chemistry and biology had to give those, they, they were required towards the end of their years to give some sort of lecture on something. And I would get back from Mark Sutherland and others, biology, chemistry people, they could always tell when their their student who was delivering had had the speech class because it was completely different in terms of organization and, and presentation. So that was always nice. It was, it was affirming that, oh, yeah, I'm doing the right thing after all. Good for me. <laughs> but more importantly... Good for them because they can apply that anywhere. It doesn't have to be science. It doesn't have to be business. It's applied everything in everything you do. It certainly well, is. Yeah. And no doubt over your years of teaching, from speech to speech to speech, you've probably heard some real humdingers. Oh, gosh, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about the the the... the the worst speech that you ever heard. And you don't have to tell us who gave it, but tell us about the worst one. Well, or, or perhaps even the he most was memorable. in my first couple of years. Okay, guys, be careful here. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I still know his name. I don't know everybody's names, but uh, it was the speech where he demonstrated. And, and I've always told students this. I said, please don't get on this list of, I'm going to tell you what you can't do. But he he gave a speech with one of those wonderful plastic blow-up dolls. 
and why she could win a wet t-shirt contest. It was a demonstration speech. No one could watch it. We were all like hands were over our eyes and we were down. And I was like, well, see, you missed the point because you want an open channel. And if the audience can't watch what you're doing, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> that was, you know, that was probably one of the worst. I mean, there and then and then I would start telling these stories of different speeches like this, Sean and Amy and. And then it, there would be kids start, sorry, they're young, 18 to 22 year olds are young to me. And they get they younger to me all to the make, time, Mary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they would try to make the list and some did. So, you know, there was the time somebody wanted, tried to show us how to make dynamite and they went out and blew up a tree behind mills. <laughs> Uh, sort of. I mean, it was blackened. And I thought I was going to lose my job over that. At the time, somebody repelled off the roof of the Mills building. You can't do that anymore, by the way, now. It's it's not allowed. <laughs> you can't put a canoe in the, the well, what is the... Oh. oh, the fountain. The fountain anymore. I think that person may now be an Odyssey Medal recipient. Probably so. <laughs> I won't get there. Unto the whole person, Amy. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things. Uh, the one that shocked me, well, was really hard, was uh, this kid decided, you know, you, you also have to have value in your messages. Is it valuable to learn this, this thing that you're going to demonstrate? Is it a valuable thing for people? And so sometimes we go outside because it's an outside demonstration. And, and I didn't realize what I was watching when they were practicing. So I sat down when it was time for the speech. And, this, and it was demonstrating how to hit trash cans with your car. And I was like, when I realized what it hit me, you know, because sometimes I'm very slow on this stuff. I had to go tell a student to tell the guy that was parked in the area he needed to move his car because something was about to happen that might hurt his car. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah. Is that valuable to know how to hit trash cans with your car? I I don't think so. Mm -mm. You know, and Mary, there's no doubt that student, you know, I'm thinking of the movie uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. There's There's always that student who's just not not really going to cut it or maybe isn't doing such a good job. But by the end, they turn into the, the, just a, a great example of mm-hmm. how uh, speech training, how a little bit of practice can help them. Is there an example of that in your history that you can think well, of? Well, Amy and Sean, <laughs> here you are. Yes, there's there's many. And, you know, honestly, there's always one or two that are really, really great in the class and and wonderful. And that's true for Student Congress, too. I want to bring Student Congress in, Sean, because there was students that I would take on as a freshman who just want to see what Student Congress was all about. And the same they were in speech and they're very, very scared. And, you know, one of the things that I love seeing is by the end of the semester or the term, they went from one one level to another where I could do this all the time. And I don't think that I ever saw anybody who never got got who never did be- better. 
everybody from where they are always improved another step or more. I'm going to bring up, and and I hope she'll listen to this sometime, but I remember Courtney Page Blair in Student Congress. She took speech from me, too. She was a she was seemed quiet, but in speech, she came up with the two topics we used from the time she was in my class until I retired for impromptu speaking. And the, and, and one of them was kissing. And I just looked at her and went, what? <laughs> and that was an impromptu speech. And they had to persuade us and they had to do research on kissing. It was really excellent. But the other part of student congress that she did was she was my helper. She was my administrative assistant for two years, her first two years. And I kept saying, you've got to do student congress. You've got to do this. And she finally stepped up and did it. And she was excellent. And I was so proud of her. I mean, and I don't want to leave anybody out, but there are stories like that over the 37 years constantly where, you know, students who thought they could not do this ever did it on their own. And, you know, there's such a joy in that for me to, to have seen that happen over time. It really was wonderful. And so uh, you taught uh, speech for so many years, and we've talked about the Hendricks campus itself. Let's talk for a moment about some of the things that some of the things that you experienced outside of Hendricks, just for a moment. Uh, tell us about uh, tell us about your family. Well, I have one. <laughs> I have <laughs> we have my husband and I. We have three daughters: Amanda, Elizabeth, and Sarah. And Amanda and all three of them, uh, it worked at, with the trimester and uh, system. They were all born in the term that I wasn't teaching on purpose. Now Sarah was sort of, she will hate this, but she was she's thirty three now. She's a Hendrix graduate. She graduated in in twenty ten, but anyway, she she was sort of surprising. And she was born three weeks before the spring term happened, and I had to bring her to school with me. And that would not have happened today, by the way, people, the way things are. But I, she, she stayed in my office for three weeks. I had a student who I paid to be with her while I taught my one course. I switched, and I would switch my courses around. My husband was in pharmacy school when I started Hendrix, and then... He be, obviously became a pharmacist. He was he is a Vietnam veteran. He is a veteran of the Desert Storm, First Gulf War. He's a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq and a veteran over time. And so he often was deployed. I had no clue in 1990 what deployment meant. I just thought, well, this is something he does once a week, once a month. He was he was full time active duty Navy. In, in 1971 to 1975. And then he went into the reserves and National Guard. And so, so in 1990, when the first Gulf War started happening, he was deployed. He was home on a Monday, deployed on that Monday, and gone a week later. And that was incredibly surprising to me. I, I went, well, that was just nice. I thought you just did that for fun. <laughs> what do you mean you're leaving for five months? But he did leave and did his work and then came back. And then after not, and he served over many times. He did med readies uh, and 
he's a clinical pharmacist, and he also visited Costa Rica and Honduras and Guatemala and different places and went on medical missions for the Army at that time. And then in 2001, when 9-11 happened, we expected him to be called up. And he eventually was, but he wasn't called up till 2004, and he was taking the place of somebody in Honduras. But in 2006, he was called up for 18 months. He became the uh, chief pharmacist over the Iraq theater in 2006, you know, and did that. And then he he got called up again in 2009, and he he was over Iraq, Kuwait, and Afghanistan at that time. He retired as a colonel, and then he's been at the VA. He works as a clinical pharmacist at the VA. He retired and then recently was called back to the VA to help give COVID shots. And really what he's doing is he's preparing the vaccine for the, for the other people to give the shots, but they needed extra people. So he's been doing that. He, he truly is the epitome of service to this country. We're incredibly proud of him as a family and, you know, think, of course, think the world of him and love him dearly. And he's a great dad. Great and, dad. And in your 38 years of teaching, what role did Rob and your daughters play in supporting you and uh, <laughs> cheering you on? They they put up with it. <laughs> hey, I remember the first time I was ever aware of Take Your Daughter to Work Day, it was because you brought your daughter. I did. I did. And I brought, awesome. I brought three or four of her friends, and we set up a whole day that day for uh, for them to see Hendrix College. And I remember that Diana Arms met with them and asked them what they wanted to be when they grow up and all this mm. stuff. And this one girl said, well, I either want to do hair or be a neurologist. <laughs> I don't know what she's doing today, but, you know, okay. <laughs> but they had a great day that day. I'm glad you remembered that uh, because that was just, oops, that was an uh, people. You're not paying attention. <laughs> they had a great day that day. It was good for them to, to well, see and, and the And it campus. was good for us to see as well. Yeah. Well, they had to come with me sometimes. When school was out, I had to bring them. I, sometimes I didn't have a choice. Didn't always have childcare. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary, I'm aware that one of the things that you do uh, outside of outside of your teaching career and everything else is you have curated a large uh, grouping of photographs of students from the past through student congress years. Yes, <laughs> even when they they weren't much different from you in age at the time back when you started working in yeah. student congress. And some of those photos are amazing. You, you have them on Facebook, and, and we look at them every once in a while, and I'm, I'm part of that with Student Yes, you Congress. are. And I, I'm so grateful that you keep those photographs. Tell us about some of those memorable times in Student Congress, uh, some of the original students who were a part of those programs, and what that process meant to you. Well, the, the way it started is I had a student I'm trying to think, Ray, I can't think of Ray's last name, and Mark Flowers. Both of them came to me when I first started at Hendricks and says, is there anything we can do competitively? And I had just been to the speech convention and saw this thing called Student Congress, which I'd heard about from Mary Ingalls. Mary Ingalls was my teacher up at Fayetteville, and she was their forensics and debate coach. And so I said, well, here's this. We could try this. And I talked to Rosemary, and Rosemary said yes. So we fielded our first team in the fall of 1979, and I I didn't quite get it. 
You know, it took me a couple of years to figure Student Congress out, but by the fall of, I'm going to say for the fall of 82, I figured it out and what you need to do. So we continued to field teams over a 37-year period, and I stopped coaching my last team, honestly, in the fall of 2015. So it really wasn't a full 37 years. And they did, those teams, as you know, did very well. And at first, at first it was like, how can we do this so we can win this thing? Mm. And so at first it was all about, let's get everybody to vote for us. Let's get all the points we can get and let's get everybody to vote for us. Well, as I became director of Congress two different times, I made some changes where you didn't get points just because you got elected to office. And that changed the focus. And from there, what I learned was it matters that you understand the bills, that you understand and research those bills so that when it's your turn to speak, you can speak on either side of the issue. And that changed it for us because before it was, we have to play politics and we have to do all this stuff. And, you know, and, and, I, and I remember John Churchill going, well, you won again. What else is new? We won five <laughs> years in a row, five years in a row. And I, what I worried about mostly the last two times we had won was these kids were more worried about winning and that they would be the first team to lose than actually understanding what this process ought to be about. So I worked on changing that for us, that we not be the political thing where we have to do, we have to win. And there is some transference of that information to what's going on in today's world in the United States and how politics is playing a role that it, it probably shouldn't play in the same way. So we changed and we, we ran for office, but it wasn't about winning. It was about speaking. Mm. The more you speak, the more you understand your parliamentary procedure and use it properly, the better you will do. And from that, over the course of 36 visits to student Congress, we have 27 wins. Mm. Because of that. And point of information, this yeah. is a program <laughs> for, for our listeners who don't know, Student Congress is a program where we uh, pretended to be as if we were a Congress. Yes. At, at Hendricks, we competed against the U of A. Uh, I think ASU might have had a team, Henderson. Uh, it, go ahead and describe that if you can, Mary. Uh, you have, uh, well, we, we competed a bit against colleges, and this, the colleges played the Senate, the high schools in the state play the House of Representatives. And we go through a caucus process where you elect officers to run the House and the Senate. And then students bring their bills and they're debated. We have a committee. They debate them in committees. And if they get out of committee, then they go to the floor to be debated. And if they pass, they go to the other house to be debated and possibly they went if they pass there, then they become a law. Excuse me, they become a law of Congress, and that's mm. basically the process. It is run by the Arkansas Communication and Theater Arts Association, and that was the award you alluded to, Amy, at the very beginning. Uh, that was mm. given to me on my in my last student congress, uh, given to students in my last student congress. I think they're still doing it. There's another there for... award here, by the way, with my name on it. I'm going to brag about that one. But it is, it. it's an award that's given out through the Student Development 
area for student activities, and it is for Student Congress Mock Trial and Model UN. Students involved in that, mm-hmm. those programs have the opportunity to win this award. I don't know what they get. I hope they get something good. But anyway, <laughs> at least they get they get a plaque or something. But uh, and and so Sean and I started Mock Trial with mm. the help of three students and. Will Van Scoy and Armin Neshat, pardon me, and finally Brittany. And Brittany is now married to Luke, and my brain has just gone blank on last names. But they started. And she's a lawyer. Yes, she's a lawyer. So it's Will. So it's Will. And Armin is in Los Angeles, or has been. I, I got to meet with him a couple of years ago when I was out there visiting Sarah, our daughter. But anyway, yeah, and so mock trial has gotten started. I don't know if it's still going. It is. It is. Wonderful, wonderful. And then Daniel Whalen took over Model UN, thank goodness, because I always felt like I was just the tour guide there, getting them there. (laughs) And he has really turned that program in since he started into a fabulous program and an educational one. It's so good. And and. He does such good work with those students. I'm so proud to know him and know that he has done this the way it should have been done. And I actually took over after David Larson, but David Larson did a good job with the group he had from Model UN. And I, but again, I was just a tour guide. That was it. <laughs> travel agent. I was a travel agent. Well, and, and Mary, I, I, rec- I realize as I look back on it that you are always so relatable and you continue to be but relatable to students. And perhaps that's because I'm going to guess here, when you came to campus, you were 25, and you've always related so beautifully to the students. And the other thing that you were always able to do, you call it being a tour guide or a travel guide or a travel agent. But I see in there a great sense of integrity. You always followed through. And I'm curious whether it was creating the reservations for us to go to student congress and stay in hotels or to know what the timing was or to hold a breakfast at your home before the -hmm. first day of competition, which you always did, where does that sense of integrity come from? I have no clue. (laughs) I didn't know I had. Oops. You do. I I don't know. I I think it, it, for me personally, a lot of the stuff that I have done over the years through my connection with Hendrix has been always to create community mm. and to make sure that everybody feels welcome. I am sure that I fell short on many occasions. I'm not going to sing praises for myself here about that. In, in the classroom, I probably did a student congress, et cetera, even the campus. But it was about community for me. Now, if that means that comes through with integrity, okay, but that wasn't the intention. Uh, mm-hmm. It was that I wanted a community too, and this was mine. And so it was all about doing that. You know, even we, you know, we, I was on the group that, that started planning for explorations, the freshman course, and I know that that has taken on different things over the years, but that was also one of the tenets for it was to create community to keep students connected 
And I think that may be what you're talking about more than I don't think I had integrity in that. But anyway, uh, it's keeping everybody connected. You know, when I taught a speech class, I'd go in the very first day and I'd look around that room and I still can do this. And I go, who are we going to be in 14 weeks, 11 weeks? Because this is a group that was not together. They don't know each other. They're all freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors. It, it wasn't all freshmen or all this. It wasn't that. And my thing was, by the end of this course, we're all going to be together. And we were. And it was always sad to walk out that door. And Mills 101 is my room. <laughs> I love that room. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was for many reasons I wanted that room. It didn't have a window, so there was no distraction for students. And But anyway, and I'd walk out that door and I'd turn the light off when class was over. And it was like finishing, finishing a play. It was done. And... We all had a great time. Oh, my goodness, we had such fun. I, I mean, I had a great time. That, you know, and, and my goal was I better be having fun because if I'm not having fun, no one else is. Well, you mentioned it was like a play. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about some of the plays that you were active in while you were here? I was active in the musicals from, I'm trying to think, from 1981. We did five or five, at least five. 1981 through 2002 was the last musical I did. The first one was The Boyfriend, and that was a lot of fun. In most of the musicals, in fact, all of them I had never seen before. So I didn't have anything to go on by what I should choreograph, but I was the choreographer. And sometimes the stager of, of some of the songs, putting them in a certain place and stuff. But The Boyfriend was the first one. Elizabeth Smith Small was in that one. Dennis Meredith, Nancy Alligood. I can go around the room. And Maya Frazier. Uh, so many more. Uh, and and then the second one was The Happy End. It was a Bertold, I'm going to say his name wrong, Bertold Brecht play musical, sort of based on what you would think Guys and Dolls was. And Werner Trishman was in that one. And so was uh, Doug Blackman. Doug Blackman was in that. And I, I, just, I wish I had the stuff in front of me. I just hate leaving names out because we had, we had fun with that one. The next one was the first real honest, I mean, Boyfriend was sort of dancing, but the real dancing musical was the, the 1940s radio hour. Frank Rowland had been the tech person on Boyfriend and The Happy End, but this is the musical that Danny Grace brought in with us. He was the tech person, uh, theater, uh, sets and sound and everything on that one. And that was one with tap dancing and all kinds of things in it. So much fun. So much fun with the music of those days in the 40s. I mean, it was really, really fantastic. And then we did Into the Woods and Sarah and Bobby Engler Young were in that one. And I'm trying to think after that, it was Tarantara, Tarantara, which was based on Gilbert and Sullivan music. And then we did, uh, I'm going to miss what, Side by Side by Sondheim. And then the last one I did, and those were all done with Rosemary as the director. Dr. Hindenburg is the director. The last one was Terry Sneed's musical. It was in the winter or spring of 2002, and that was working. And it was another Stephen Schwartz musical. And a lot of students in that that have gone on to do some really fun things. James Maynard O'Connell, he teaches at Episcopal Collegiate. He was in that one. And he is teaching theater there now. So you can see what they did here. They have moved on and done somewhere else, too. It's wonderful. 
So that's my that's my big thing. Actually, the first the first one I did was with the the choir before the boyfriend, and that's what Rose when Rosemary asked me to be a choreographer for her. But it was with the choir, and it was a little music, uh, little tiny musical, and we did it in grow uh, in the church, the sanctuary, and. John Merrill Jr. was in that one, and my brain has just gone blank on the name of that one. I gave my script to Lyle Rupert. Lyle was was in it too. He was when he was a student. So, wow. Now, Mary, since you started at Hendricks in 1979, how how has the campus and the curriculum and the experience changed? Well, since I've been out five years, I have no clue, but. <laughs> The campus has grown. You know, the buildings have changed. The old administration building burned down and we built the new one in 1984 and it was dedicated. And we added the houses uh, over there by the administration, the newer administration building. And of course, what's across the street is all new. The fact that Hewlin is gone and we have in its place the SLTC plus plus what is the new museum art museum and art building with classrooms the art buildings i mean we've grown it's grown a lot um and and changed you know the trimester system to the semester system changed things quite a bit in how they were done i know everybody's used to it now but it took several years for everybody to get their rhythm on how to do semester system because so many of us had had been spending years doing trimester and understood that process. So those of us that were new again to the semester system, because I grew up on semester system in college, you know, it took a while to get used to that. And and it did it did change things. I mean, we used to go get our mail in, in Hewlin in the campus center, and that changed when the SLTC came into place. So nobody ever came to get their mail anymore because it went to departments. So it broke us apart. Because you didn't have to go out anywhere, you didn't have to leave the building if you didn't want to. But I left anyway. I, you know, and went over and had had lunch. But but yeah, that changed things. Uh, it it's not for me now as an older person, growing into that and being older. From and I was I was part time for a long time, but I was seven years full time involved in the faculty governance in ways when I was full time. And for me, the community did change, and but maybe that's because I was in a different place in an age, different age. You know, I mean, that's you know, maybe they're they're all happy with what they've got. But because we had all these new buildings happening, the the uh, biology, chemistry separated, psychology separated. Psychology was with us in Mills, and I'm sure they were cramped. I mean, you know, but the minute they moved out, I never saw those people again. So, you know, buildings separated us and in a way that did not, did not, I did not aspire to finding community in quite the same way. So, but they may have found a way to do that themselves. But if they're not connecting with other departments, it's not a real good liberal arts experience, possibly, for faculty in the way it is for students who are having to take all these different courses for the liberal arts experience. But we used to be connected very well within the programs. And so maybe they are, because I've been gone five years. Well, and as, as students have come through over time, what do you hope that they have taken away from their Hendricks experience or from their experience in your courses? 
Well, the liberal arts experience should translate across to anything they do because, you know, I heard I heard somebody we had at Fall Faculty Conference a long time ago. John Churchill had brought him in. He was from Davidson, and he said, you know, a liberal arts education allows students to be able to do anything. You know, and I don't oh, know. He was from St. John's because all they studied was the great books. That's it. And how does that translate to doing a job in the tech world? And amazingly, you know, those who have had those kinds of experiences, actually, it translated very well. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, yes, we need to know how to use a computer. We need to know how to code. We need to do all these things. And we have that. We've had that at Hendricks. I guess we still do. But I think about St. John's and what they do. And yet it translates. Just the great book. That's all they study. Well, it was I think an, one of our prime examples of that now um, here at Hendricks is that Bracken Darrell heads up Logitech, uh, but was an English major at Hendricks. Right. And, and yeah. Elizabeth Small. Yes. Elizabeth Small, who's a theater major, became some, a real estate developer with a large an organization that she built. Right. And she retired from that, and she is now teaching at UALR and doing a great job for students and for the community in the real estate world. And, you know, she's theater. What's that mm-hmm. about? And there's a lot, of, lot to be said for theater, by the way. I remember one year for the Odyssey Awards, three of them, three or four of them were all involved, heavily involved in the theater department here under Rosemary. Mm. And they were doing other things. I mean, you know, one of them had, had done, had, had built something, developed uh, a breast cancer screening thing. You know, I mean, that, was, that year was just amazing to watch all of those, those former students who had been, the theater was their thing. Mary, I have a series of words that I want to say, and I'd Uh-oh. like for you. <laughs> Is it pop quiz time, li- Sean? And I'd like for you to give your, just a one word reflection answer, if you can, to each one. And if you need to explain it, go right ahead. But I'm just going to go through each one, one at a time. Uh, student Congress. Two words, but Student Congress. What pops into my head? Mm. No sleep for three days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, really? Really? That's You're the, gonna, that's the word. That's um, the word? It's what, not a word. <laughs> Don't use it. It doesn't, it's a filler. It just fills time. Please keep it out of your speech. Do your best. And and, and really, again, about my filler issues. My filler issues are not specifically to um or uh or well or okay. It is listen to yourself while you speak. If you're listening, you aren't using those words, those terms, those phrases, those fillers, because they take up time. And they mean nothing. So listen to yourself while you speak. Everybody always just thought, oh, I hate ums. No, I'm trying to get you to listen to yourself while you speak. That's what comes to mind. Hendrix. Hendrix College, we adore thee through the years to come. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And I'm sorry, Mary Lou Martin isn't right next to me because she would sing harmony when we would be singing that song at graduation. (laughs) Mm. Speech. We need more. Mm. 
Hennenberg. An amazing, amazing professor. I took, I took her, her acting course in 1986, and it changed my teaching. And it changed what I did in the classroom, and it helped me learn how to build that community, her class. And that's, I'm very grateful that she hired me. I'm very grateful that I had all these years at Hendrix. And I don't know if you're going to say the one word and say Alice, but I'm going to say it, Sean. Alice Hines is my mentor. She is my friend. She and Rosemary supported me in ways you all will never know how much. And I, I think of Alice Hines all the time in terms of how she speaks and how she reasons. And, you know, I can talk to her about most anything. And I'm so grateful for her friendship and her ability to listen to me and tell me when I'm off base, too. She can tell me, and I appreciate that. And... So I wanted to get Alice's name in here because she means she, so much to me. She was next on my list. Oh, shoot. And, okay, and sorry. And she had the same impact on me. And yeah, my and rhetoric me. and writing course with her is mm. something I continue to use as a judge every day. Yeah. My last word, Mary Richardson. Not done yet. <laughs> and Good you know we're glad. Of, we're so glad for that. Yeah, you know that, Sean. That's right. Judge, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're we're here, uh, Amy. I know close to the end of our hour. Um, trying to think of where we haven't uh, touched on all of the important contributions that you've made, uh, Mary Professor Richardson, to this campus. Um, it's truly a remarkable run to teach for thirty-eight years and to impact the lives of so many people. And it's so meaningful and special. And that's, I think, why I talk about integrity, your follow-through and your leadership and your goal-oriented way that you accomplish everything, whether it was in personal life or in academic and professional life. And we're just, as alumni, we are so incredibly grateful to you. Yes, indeed. That's very kind. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I, I do think that some of the things, Sean, that you were involved in and watching and being in my speech class, Amy, and everything, it had it, you know, being out in the real world the last five years, it has truly translated from the academic world to this other world and that I wasn't all that involved in. I want to thank Sean for getting me involved. Uh, I have learned how to to be involved in political-type campaigns, and that's been exciting. And using parliamentary procedure has been very useful over the last four years for lots of reasons, and so I appreciate that. But Sean and Amy, this has been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. My face hurts from smiling so hard this whole time. <laughs> Thank you for coming back and, and hanging out with us for a bit. So kind of you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. And teacher. <laughs> That's very special. Thanks for listening to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendrix Past. Our audio engineer is Megan Stevenson, Hendrix class of 2007. Our theme music was created by Kristen Puchinski, Hendrix class of 1997, performing as Ellen Cherry. 
Thanks for listening.